Welcome to Life Source Church. We are so glad you found us. We hope that you will experience God with us as you hear the preaching of the word. Good morning. So as Anthony mentioned, uh, my name is Mike, Pastor Mike. I'm at a church in Fishkill, New York. And many of you have been praying for us. We appreciate your prayers. Uh, I'm the student ministries pastor there, but right now I'm the only pastor there. We're in some transition, and uh, we actually had uh, Pastor Walt down our way in the fall, and uh, he helped by preaching for us one Sunday. So I'm reciprocating, returning the favor, and uh, so it's, it's good to be here. I grew up in Auburn, not too far away, and I married Pastor Walt's uh, oldest daughter, Jessica. Is she here yet? she make it here? There she is. Great. Good to see you. All right. You never know. With seven kids, you know, it's, uh, it's always a, a question mark if anyone's going to make it or not to church. So, uh, yeah, so really glad to be here. Uh, glad to share the word with you this morning. Uh, this comes to you from a sermon series we started at our church back in January uh, that I called uh, Jesus Talks. And you're all familiar probably with TED Talks. And I thought the Sermon on the Mount was perhaps the most original or first TED Talk, and certainly the most viral because we're still talking about it today over 2,000 years later, right? So uh, the, the background for my slides is actually a picture I took uh, when I was in Israel uh, back in 2017. Uh, you're probably familiar with all this. You probably hear from Pastor Walt all the time about his trips to Israel. This was the first one he took, and I was with him, and that's me. This is on top of Mount Arbel. And it's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And as you know from reading your Bibles, that uh, Jesus did a lot of teaching in this area. So it's likely, some believe, that this is where Jesus gave the Great Commission. Uh, but it's likely that Jesus did some teaching, perhaps on that very mountain that overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And so I thought it'd be a good background for us for uh, really one of his most well known passages uh, of teaching uh, coming to us from the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, I want to, uh, I need to let you know something about my family. Uh, this morning, uh, there is an active, ongoing revolt in my household. I have a three-year-old, and he has declared his sovereignty over his father. And it gets interesting, right? Here's one example. The other day, he wanted a cookie for breakfast, and I said, no, you can't have a cookie for breakfast. Well, it got nuclear really fast, right? And he did not like that I had to say no to him, right? Uh, and so he, uh, when, when his own sovereignty that he's declared, right, when that's challenged, uh, it, it, gets, uh, it gets a little dicey there, right? It's, it goes to a place, it spirals quickly, you don't want to know about the details, right? Pastor and author uh, Vadi Bakum uh, once jokingly said, the reason children are small is so they won't kill you in your sleep. <laughs> we laugh, but the reason, you know, it, it's sometimes refreshing, right? Because when, you, when you're dealing with a toddler, you know, it's just all out there. So it's out in the open, and you know what you're dealing with, right? They haven't learned, like we have, to kind of mask our selfishness, right? We haven't learned, how, they haven't learned how to do that yet, right? And some of us, we never really grow out of that selfishness. We just learn how to sanitize it, right? And to cover it up and learn how to coexist with people, right? Uh, and I'll tell you, one of the greatest tools 
from God for sanctification in my own life has been having children because they don't care about your idols, right? They'll step all over them and they'll rip that mask that you've learned to kind of build up around your selfishness. They'll rip that right off, right? And so if you want to learn how to be more like Jesus, start having kids, right? Because that'll challenge you. So my son is operating in a kingdom where he is the ultimate sovereign and any challenge to it is met with hostility. And this is the nature of sin. Augustine once uh, used this Latin phrase, uh, it's uh, incurvatus in se, which essentially means uh, life uh, turned inward on self. Right? Isn't that a really great description of sin? Right? Life turned inward on self, curved inward on self. So every one of us is part of a kingdom. Every one of us is part of a kingdom. And the kingdom consists of a sovereign, uh, and a sovereign has subjects who are accountable to it. And that sovereign promotes a set of values that carry certain promises for flourishing in that kingdom. All right? Right now, my son is learning, right? He has to abide by certain rules to flourish in the kingdom of our household, right? Or it's not going to go well for him. And throughout history of the world, there have been many revolutions that usher in regime changes. And with each new regime change brings a new set of values that are associated with that new kingdom. And so you could say that Jesus was a revolutionary because he came to replace this old kingdom. He came to replace this old kingdom of the world with a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom, this kingdom that he came to usher in would be so radically different than the one that's replacing that I'm going to refer to it this morning as the upside-down kingdom. Right? Not because it's the wrong way, but because uh, for the rest of the world, it's so different, it looks upside down. It looks just different, right? And we're going to work through three points this morning. The first is going to be two kingdoms. The second will be uh, the right-side-up kingdom, right? The, the old kingdom, and then we'll look at the upside-down kingdom. And I want you to all turn with me and, and look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20. I think the page number is on the screen there, 1,187 if you're using the Pew Bibles. I spoke at a teen conference recently, and I I learned that to say, turn with me is sort of antiquated now, because they all have devices. So I've started saying, tap with me, or scroll with me, you know, whatever the the equivalent is. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, I'm your humble servant. May I faithfully proclaim your word this morning that your gospel would open the eyes of hearts to the treasure of knowing Jesus. And may your Holy Spirit work on all our hearts to conform them more to the character of Jesus, to the glory of God. Amen. All right, so if you're with me now, Luke chapter 6, we're going to read verses 20 to 26. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, 
for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out. Uh, Your name is evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So our first point this morning, two kingdoms. There's really only two kingdoms. You're either a citizen of the one or you're a citizen of the other. Paul writes to the church in Colossae that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Everyone is born a citizen of the kingdom of darkness because of sin, right? We inherit it. The kingdom of darkness, uh, this is the kingdom where we are the sovereigns, right? We sit on the thrones of our own hearts, accountable to ourselves and living by the values that we determine are best. The problem with this is not that uh, the way, uh, this is not the way that life was designed to be lived. Right? If we acknowledge a creator, then he has the right to say how our, our lives should be lived and he's the one who determines how it's lived best, right? I often explain to my kids that when they use something in a way that it's not intended to be used for, that they will likely break it or hurt someone, right? I think that's how life works as well, right? Uh, if, we, if we don't uh, live life the way in which it works best, uh, then we're going to break something and we're going to hurt people, likely even ourselves. But how do we know that we're not supposed to be the sovereign of our lives, right? I want to explain something to you. There's a way, in in Romans chapter 1, Paul explains how uh, that we can observe the the natural world and know uh, enough about God to be held accountable to him. And I want to share with you, you you can observe the world around us and know that we are accountable to someone without even looking at the scriptures, Right? I want to talk to you about something called the moral law. Right? There, this idea called the moral law. Let me explain. We can all agree um, that laws don't write themselves. Agreed? Yeah, laws don't write themselves. Okay? So if anything is known to be a universal uh, right or wrong for all people, that there's uh, an, an objective universal law, if that exists, okay, uh, one example is, is this, right? Uh, I, I hope we can all agree that murdering people for fun is wrong, right? For everybody, right? It's kind of written on our hearts, and we should know that, right? Uh, if you disagree, uh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'm going to hit the, hit the parking lot right after the service, you know? Um, so if there is a universal moral law, then there must be a universal moral law giver. Agreed? 
Because laws don't write themselves. And if there's a universal law written on everyone's hearts that transcends ourselves, then there's got to be an authority higher than ourselves that we're accountable to. Right? I didn't even use the scriptures there. We just observe that from common sense and reasoning, right? So someone with the wisdom, the power, and the goodness to write this law on every human heart for our goodness and for our flourishing sounds a lot like God. Agreed? Sounds a lot like God. The problem, the problem is that sin distorts this, this reality, right? Uh, and, and, and rebels against this authority, right? The devil deceived Adam and Eve by getting them to doubt that God was good. That's where it started. That's where sin started, with a doubt in the goodness of God himself. And in revolutionary fashion, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, against his authority, and declared themselves to be sovereign over their own lives. And since that day, like a disease, all of humanity has been born into the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that Paul describes. Each of us are our own sovereigns. How's this been working out? Right? Turn on the news. It won't take you long to figure out that we've done a really good job of making a mess of things. Right? And this is why Jesus came. He came to usher in God's kingdom and to make things right again. And there are only two kingdoms. The right-side-up kingdom of me or the upside-down kingdom of God. And Paul says something really interesting in Romans 13, 12 and 13. He says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us walk properly as in the day. All right? In other words, spiritually speaking, our time in the history of the world is from the time Jesus first came until now, until he returns, it's the dawn. We're, we're living in spiritual dawn. All right? And at the dawn, there are characteristics of both the night and the day that are in play. Right? So there's a, there's a little bit of both going on in, in this uh, history, uh, in, the, in our historical moment that we find ourselves in. But the night is waning and the day is breaking in. The night is waning, the day is breaking in. Theologians have described this characteristic of, of God's kingdom as the already but the not yet. It's here now, but not yet in its fullness. And both of these rival kingdoms are in play. As followers of Jesus, we must live as citizens of the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom, and resist the influence of the old kingdom by living by its values. In point two, we're going to compare and contrast these two values, starting with the right-side-up kingdom of me. Right? So the right-side-up kingdom. Every kingdom has a set of values. I mentioned this earlier. Right? Uh, values, uh, a list of things that are esteemed, those things that are to, uh, to be valued and treasured. Right? And then there's another list of things that are to be avoided. Right? These things are good, and these things are not good. Right? And these are the, the values of, of any kingdom. So the values of the kingdom Jesus came to replace are outlined in verses 24 to 26 of our passage today. What are they? Right? They are power, 
comfort, success, and recognition. First, I know verse 24 actually says rich, but in reality, rich and poor are matters of power. Okay, they're matters of power. Don't hear what I'm not saying here. It's not that uh, having wealth is wrong. That's not a wrong thing. The value that Jesus came to replace, though, is that of seeking wealth as a means to gain power and control. All right. So next in verse 25, woe to you who are full now. This has to do with material comfort, nice clothes, uh, a beautiful home, a fancy new car. Uh, all these things, again, aren't wrong in themselves, but this is not what we were meant to live for and to strive after. Right? Then we have, woe to you who laugh now. Greek experts will tell you that the word for laugh here is really a negative word. It, it basically means to gloat. Right? This is not referring to general happiness. Uh, this is, I won and you lost, right? This is me throwing a little party for myself in my heart uh, because uh, I won and you lost, right? That's, that's this idea of, of gloating that's associated with this Greek word to laugh. And lastly, in verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. We all want people to speak well of us, right? This is recognition, this is popularity, this is celebrity. So the values of the, upside, of the right side up kingdom of me are power, comfort, success, and recognition. These are the values Jesus has come to replace. The desirable values of the right side up kingdom of me are driven by the now. All right? They're driven by the now. And this makes sense when you understand it. If... if uh, Verse 25 makes this really clear, right? And if you think about it, it makes sense. In the, if the past is gone, right, and the future is uncertain, and there's no eternal reality, then the now is really all that there is. Agreed, right? If that's, how, if that's your outlook on life, the past is gone, the future is uncertain, I don't believe in an eternal reality, now is all that there is. This is your worldview that it makes absolute sense that you would pursue power, comfort, success, and recognition now. And that those would be ultimate values for you. Because it's driven by the now. You see the opposite of these values in verses uh, 20 to 23. These are the things to be avoided and sneered at according to the kingdom of me. These are weakness, Discomfort or sacrifice, grief, exclusion. When the circumstances of life bring weakness, discomfort, grief, or exclusion, you say, oh my, my life is over. This shows that you're living by the values of the kingdom of me. That is the right side up kingdom. But what about the upside down kingdom? What about the upside-down kingdom? Let's look at this in our last point. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to usher in brings with it a reversal of the world's values, the kingdom of me, being driven by power, comfort, success, and recognition, are, are pitiable because 
There is more than just the now. Right? If those are the things that we live for, it's to be pitied. Because Jesus came to tell us there's more than just the now. I want to make one thing clear, though. You, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, I don't have a problem with those things. Right? Uh, I'm not tempted by these values. Maybe you're a person uh, who just can't stand being around powerful people or people with money. Right? Just, I don't, like, I don't like being around them. Right? Or, or maybe you run from recognition. You don't want any credit for anything. You know? uh, well, let me just tell you, that's, that's not actually pious. It's actually, I think it's evidence that you're still being controlled by those values. Being scared of these things means that deep down you're probably intimidated by them. Or maybe you still kind of really want them. Right? The mark of a person who lives in the upside-down kingdom of God is that they can take these things or leave them. They aren't bad things. If God decides to bless you in that way, so be it. But we can leave them too. We can take it, we can leave it. Because the now is not all that there is. Here's an example. Uh, so there's these two employees. And if they were, uh, they're, they're in a, a situation at work where uh, if, if they were to tell the truth to their boss, they'll lose their job. Right? And one employee is living by the values of the kingdom of me, uh, and the other employee is living uh, by the upside-down kingdom of God. The employee in the kingdom of me must lie. They have to. They have to lie. Because the thought of losing wealth, losing comfort, losing power, losing recognition is not an option. It's not acceptable. They're a slave. They're a slave to those things. However, the follower of Jesus in the upside-down kingdom of God tells the truth because those things are not ultimate values for them. They can take them or they can leave them. They know that they have to do the right thing. Notice the beautiful paradox that exists for those in the kingdom of God. Weakness, discomfort, grief, and exclusion are all present realities but so is the pronouncement of blessedness. They coexist. What Jesus is saying is that for those in his kingdom, they can weep and at the same time also be blessed. They can coexist with each other. In the old kingdom, blessedness and laughter do not go together. I'm sorry. Yeah, blessedness and laughter go together. And blessedness and weeping never go together. They never go together. But they do in the kingdom of God. They do because being blessed has nothing to do with your present circumstances. It transcends that. This is even more clear in verse 23. Look at it with me. When people revile you and exclude you, Jesus tells us that it's appropriate for us to rejoice. In that very day, why? How can we do this? Because he says that your reward in heaven is great. Not will be great someday, it's great now. You can rejoice now. 
because your reward is great now. What is our reward anyway? I believe our reward is Jesus himself. Right? When we, when we go uh, to heaven one day and be with him, uh, I've heard someone say once that if Jesus isn't there, it's not heaven. Right? So if there's something you're looking forward to more than Jesus in heaven, uh, you might want to examine your heart. Right? Uh, our reward is that we get Jesus himself. This is how Paul describes Christians who live by the values of the kingdom of God. In Colossians 3.2, our minds are set not on the things above and not on the things of earth. We may lose recognition, but we are famous with God. This is what it means to rejoice while being excluded. These things do not bother us anymore. We are free from them. And this is the great reversal of the upside-down kingdom. So where does the power to live in this way, where does it come from? It comes from the gospel. It comes from the gospel. What do I mean by it? This is what I mean. For our part in the rebellion that set up the kingdom of me, we deserve to be discomforted, to weep, and to be excluded. But Jesus reversed his fortunes with ours. He put himself where we deserved to be when he was discomforted on the cross. He wept and he was excluded when that's what we deserved. This is grace. This is the grace of God. Grace is what gives us the power to live by the values of the kingdom of God, knowing that Jesus bore every bad thing we deserved for our sin and gives us every good thing we don't deserve in his kingdom. That's grace. And that will fuel your obedience to live by the values of the kingdom of God. Experiencing that grace, understanding that reality will turn your life upside down and make you fit for the kingdom of God, for that upside-down kingdom. How do we get, how do we enter this kingdom? Right? How do we, how do we get there? The Gospel of Matthew's account uh, of a similar teaching of Jesus explains, uh, in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, let me explain this in this way. There's two ways of looking at God. The first approach is to reflect on your life and to believe that I've lived a pretty good life. I'm a decent person. God owes me at least a little bit, right? A little comfort and not to allow you know, really bad things to happen to me, right? I'm, I'm owed that to some degree, because I've worked hard at, at being a good person. This is being middle class in spirit. I've worked hard. I deserve to be rewarded for my efforts. That's middle class in spirit, not poor in spirit. The other way of looking at God is to reflect on your life and to know that I have nothing. I have nothing of value to offer God. God owes me nothing good. God would be completely just to cut me off. My only hope is to put all of my trust in what Jesus has done for me and to ask him to forgive me 
and to accept me. And this is what it means to be poor in spirit. And it's the only way that anyone can be brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus tells a story about uh, a religious leader, a Pharisee, and a tax collector. And they both enter into the temple to pray. And the religious leader, he goes and prays and he says, God, thank you. I'm not like that sinner. Because, I, of course, I tithe. I fast. And I do all these wonderful things for you. Right? The religious leader here is being middle class in spirit. The tax collector, he simply cries out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says the tax collector and not the religious leader was the one who left the temple that day justified. He's the one who found the entrance to the kingdom of God. So the way you enter the kingdom of God is by knowing that nothing you can do can earn even an ounce of favor with God. And then appeal to Jesus alone who suffered in your place on the cross and to pay and forgive your sin completely. Lastly, when you experience this kind of grace in your life is turned upside down by Jesus reversing his fortunes with yours, you will live a reckless life. I don't mean that you're going to be wildly irresponsible. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I mean is that your life will look so different to those living around you in the old kingdom that your life will look reckless to them. Right? Your life will look reckless. And that's because for the Christian, money and comfort and success and reputation, they're nice things, but we're not controlled by them. And we're willing to sacrifice them for the sake of following Jesus. And this is, this has never been more relevant than our, our time and place and, and culture, right? With everything going on in the world. Uh, I, I actually read just last night about uh, this rugby uh, star in Australia. Uh, I'm not a rugby guy, but apparently this guy, he's, he's sort of what Michael Jordan was to basketball. He's that to rugby. And he's made some, um, some statements or tweets uh, espousing you know, biblical values. And now he's uh, under, um, under punishment by the league. They're, they might cancel his multi-million dollar contract, right? And he's said essentially, you know, if that happens, that happens. But, you know, I, I, need, to follow, I need to follow Jesus, right? I need to live by these values and not... Uh, by the values of the world. Here's a guy who's willing to walk away from millions of dollars for the sake of following Jesus. There was a, I don't know her name, I forget, she looked all this up, right? But um, there was a, uh, a soccer player, a female soccer player in the U.S. A couple of years ago, uh, she decided, uh, she was called up to the U.S. national team, right? If, if you're a soccer player, if that's your career, that's kind of the goal, that's the dream, right? And she had learned that 
the U.S. national women's team was going to be wearing um, pride jerseys and have kind of rainbow kind of numbers on the back, and she just didn't feel comfortable with that. And so she didn't really even say why, uh, but she declined the call-up to, um, to the national team. And uh, if, if you read about it, I mean, she just gets lambasted. You know, she goes, um, you know, on, on tour with her, her club team, and, you know, the crowd boos her every time she gets the ball. Uh, these are examples. You see what, see what I'm doing here? These are all examples of people today who are living by the values of the upside-down kingdom of God and risking it all, risking exclusion, risking fame, risking money, risking comfort. Because the grace of God is that good. And now is not all there is. In closing, I'll leave you with two questions. Which kingdom are you living in? Which kingdom are you living in? Are you living your life controlled by the world's values or are you living your life for Jesus Christ because of what he has done for you? And this is my takeaway for you. Fueled by grace. Live in the upside down kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of your son Jesus who took our place, who was excluded and mourned and wept and was cast out, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God poured out for sin. He bore it himself. He took it. In exchange, he gives us life and acceptance with God our creator. God, may these truths grab hold of our hearts this morning and turn our lives upside down for your kingdom. And may we live in a way that will cause heads to turn when we make choices or decisions that aren't compatible with the world's values. People wonder why. Why would they do that? Why would they give up that? And may we be so willing and quick to tell them that we found something better. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.